Welcome back to another episode of the Junkyard Pod. I'm your host, Tony Pesta, alongside Jackson Flickager. And Jackson, we might have to change the name of this pod because I'm not sure if the Cavs are junkyard dogs anymore. (laughs) By far the biggest disappointment, uh, and there are many disappointing things to point to in this series, but the biggest one to me is their lack of effort and adjustments from the start of game five. Uh, It's a game five on your home floor. Everything is on the line. You have nothing to lose but your own pride at this point. And entering this game, I know that it doesn't necessarily always work like this, but I had this vision that if they're going to win this game, they're going to bring it to New York in the opening minutes. They're going to come out with some fire, like their backs are against the wall, and we're going to see like an 18-6 to run to start the quarter. Uh, It really took just three minutes, maybe not even, for me to be like, oh, like my stomach dropped and I saw they're not doing anything different. They haven't made any adjustments. And the most important thing, the most disappointing thing, the Knicks had more energy from the start. The Knicks were playing like they were the ones facing elimination. And the Cavs, I mean, like I said, they had nothing to lose at this point other than to go out swinging. And they didn't. They dug themselves a hole basically right away. And I would say at no point in this game did it even feel like the Cavs were going to end up winning. I know they made various runs which they did throughout the series. But, you know, just every step of the way, the Knicks uh, crushed momentum and did what needed to be taken care of. So uh, there are many disappointing things to point to. There are many places we can take this conversation. But Jackson, I want to start off and just hear your feelings in a nutshell about that Game 5 performance. Um, It was just basically a repeat of Games 3 through, like, 3 and 4. It was, like, the same thing. And I think one of the things that I thought was kind of was kind of overblown was how big of a factor Madison Square Garden was in the way the Cavs were looking. When you go back and like, aside from like the first quarter of Game Three, because I think the Cavs were actually running some good stuff in the beginning of Game of Game Three, and just missing a bunch of open shots. Besides that little stretch there. I think all of their issues kind of came back to like not being in the right position, not really knowing what they're supposed to be doing. And you know, that when, when you're in a position like that, that leads to pressing. And we saw a lot of pressing, especially from Donovan Mitchell, you know, you see guys out of position, you're not able to, because you're out of position, you're not able to create those runouts. Just, just all the things that we've been saying since like you know game one really it seems like we're just saying the same things on on repeat and the frustrating thing is it's not like a situation where we're talking about like the 2018 Cavs going up against the Warriors and we're like yeah you know what do you like you just don't have the guys to compete with KD and Steph you know you can't really stop them both like we're talking about a Knicks team that, you know, had RJ Barrett outplay your best player for the last three games. So that's where that's it's great. just kind of, yeah. Yeah. So that's where it's just kind of like there's just so much blame to go to go around. I think it all starts with kind of not being in the right position. And I don't think they were on both ends of the floor, but then there was just poor execution from 
those positions and just it was all bad really mm -hmm. yeah you know I, I don't think anyone would deny that the Cavs have the talent to you know push this series to six or seven even win the series I think everyone would acknowledge that the Cavs had the talent to do that and so the fact that they went out in five in the way that they did is just a great disappointment uh I think the game plan, as we have talked about over and over, the game plan didn't necessarily set them up for the best success. But even with that being said, the effort and the execution was equally as bad, if not worse. Uh, there's a play at basically at the start of the third quarter where the Cavs had ended the half with some momentum. I think they cut it to 10 uh, after digging an early hole. And then within the first minute of the third quarter, uh, Obi Toppin just beats everyone down the court and throws down a windmill. And it's like a quick reminder that like, oh, yeah, the Knicks aren't very worried right now. The Cavs aren't exactly making themselves uh, any sort of threat to the Knicks. And uh, I mean, it's it's the effort. Uh, Garland at one point in the second half, uh, at, at this point in the series, you would think he would recognize that the Knicks are playing very physical and he needs to punch back and get a little physical himself. Uh, there was a turnover. I'm not sure who got the turnover, if it was Mobley or Garland, like how they recorded it, but Garland's coming around for a dribble handoff and Brunson just squeezes right in there and steals it, just pokes it right from him. And it's like, I can understand that happening throughout the regular season, but at this point you're facing elimination and you're still not using your body to seal off Brunson. Like that's the plays that stick out to me. And I'm just like, yeah, the game plan, we're going to talk about how weird it was, but the execution has to be better. The effort has to be better. You have to, you know, punch back. You have to get physical. This is how the Knicks have been playing and they took it right to you. And the Cavs just look completely rattled by the Knicks physicality there. Uh, drilled 48 to 30 on the glass. That is the worst uh, beating of the series. Robinson and Hart alone combined for 30 rebounds. So match the Cavs entire production right there. And it's the same thing that plagued them uh, throughout the series. Uh, Allen out of position overhelping. I mean, even saying out of position is kind of saying it wrong because he's where the Cavs were telling him to be from what I can, you know, grasp by watching it he's he's helping in this in the situations that the Cavs want him to help and you're leaving Robinson to basically just clean up all the misses again I I did a little montage of all the offensive rebounds or at least most of them Allen's not getting tossed around as much as we might feel and even I was super mad I was like dang he's really getting tossed around this game I look back at the film again and I'm like all right you know Allen can gain some weight he could definitely gain some muscle but that's really that was not the problem. It was part of the problem, but if you don't address the way that they're using him on defense, uh, adding 10, 20 pounds of muscle isn't going to fix what just happened in this series. Uh, you have to, at some point, JB, it was on him to make an adjustment. The way they were playing was clearly not working. It hadn't worked through any, you know, other than game two, where really it was just their offense was so much better in that game that the rest of the stuff didn't matter. But like at no point in this series, was the rebounding really working the way that you would want it to? And so it's on JB to make an adjustment. And the fact that you didn't just say, hey, Alan, unless you absolutely are going to block a shot or absolutely contest something, stick on Robinson. Do not leave his side. But they didn't do that, and they got drilled on the glass. Uh, Jackson, how did you feel about the rebounding battle in this one? Because it was the biggest beating of the series. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the... It's really, it's really interesting because they got killed on the glass in game one. And everyone remembers that Evan Mobley got pushed out by like Julius Randle 
but it really wasn't the bigs who were getting dominated in game one. It was all the guards were swarming back in and were just doing a great job of just being available to get rebounds and they got a ton. And then in game two, they kind of adjust, like the Cavs adjusted and did well in game two of using their guards to clear those defensive rebounds. But then games three and on, it's just, you know, that's when they really started to get a little too cute with how they were playing defense. And that's where you saw like Mitchell Robinson. Now he's going off. Now, you know, the bigs, Hart, Hartenstein, he's, he's able to get a bunch of rebounds. And that's where it's like, I don't know what the point of that, of those adjustments were. Like the Cavs had some success in game two trapping Brunson, but they didn't really trap him that much. I believe they only did it like eight times, but when they did it, they were like fully committed and it was like a change of pace. So it's like, you know, Allen being out of position and then also like just the softest non-committal traps that I think I've ever seen from any, like at, at any level of basketball, not just, you know, the NBA, like, that's where it's just like, I don't, you know, they either weren't completely bought in. Cause if you're going to play that, you have to play with your hair on fire. And like, you know, that's what we saw from Darius Garland in, you know, in game two, he was not starting out on, you know, Jalen Brunson, but was doing a really good job rotating in and out of, you know, coverages and stuff. But then, you know, nobody was able to match that when they when they did guard screens or when they tried to trap. And it just led to this whole downstream effect. And that's just what makes it all so frustrating is because the Knicks, the Cavs didn't lose because they ran into, like, this isn't like, you know, the Cavs losing to the Magic in 2009 where it's like Keto Turkoglu's making everything, you know, all those other guys whose names I'm forgetting at this moment are just, are just making everything. So it's, it wasn't a situation like that where it's like, what can you do? It's not even a situation like Jimmy Butler is, you know, just carrying the heat to a win against the Bucks. Like Jalen Brunson was fine. Like he was good. They, he did exactly what the Knicks needed him to do, but he wasn't like, he wasn't, having 40 point games every night he wasn't mm -hmm. this unstoppable force what the unstoppable force was was the calves to the calves like that's what that's what stopped this team and i think the most frustrating part is that it's like games three through five were like the second half against the hawks in the play in last year just over like you know 12 quarters instead of two where like in that game, the Hawks said, okay, we're just going, you know, they're going under on all these screens. We're just gonna use that to let Trey just shoot. And he did. And the Cavs never were able to adjust or do anything. And then they came back, you know, the Hawks came back and won that game. And, you know, it, it felt like the same thing on, on repeat here. So that's what's just like so disheartening. It's because we knew what the issues were and they played right into their hands. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to give as much credit as possible to the Knicks. I, I know you and me are on the same page here. Uh, that what, what we're trying to say is that the Cavs didn't run into just an unstoppable buzzsaw. They run in, they ran into a team that they should have been evenly matched with, and it looked like they ran into a buzzsaw. 
they got absolutely killed in basically all the most meaningful categories, and the Knicks really didn't even play that good. That's not saying that New York is not uh, a, cap- a respectable basketball team, but they really didn't play that good in this series. Uh, the most points scored in a single game this series was 107, and that was the Cavs in Game 2. The Knicks won games where they scored 101, 99, 102, and 106. So this wasn't like in the regular season when Jalen Brunson scores 48 and the Knicks are posting uh, an offensive rating that's just through the roof. While clearly they're capable of playing that way, uh, they didn't. The Knicks didn't deliver their best punch at any point in the series. They just played a very consistent level of ball and the Cavs consistently could not rise to that level despite showing throughout the regular season that they were capable of it. Uh, so that's one of that's that's what makes it so disappointing is that they showed no fight whatsoever. Uh, as one you thing, mentioned with the oh go ahead. Oh, one thing yeah. I wanted to say about the Knicks is that when we like say that they didn't play good, kind of, we mean like there's no like there was no guy who was unstoppable throughout the series. It wasn't I a think, Jimmy Butler fifty-seven right. points or fifty-six. But what it does highlight is just how much more structure the Knicks have than the Cavs. Mm-hmm. And that's just glaring. Like the Knicks, they know who they are as a team. Yeah. Like you thought the Cavs knew who they were. They don't because if they knew who they were as a team, they wouldn't be running lineups out there that didn't play all season. They wouldn't be trying to play a defense. They'd never played all season. You know, they wouldn't be doing stuff like that. The Knicks knew who they were and they, you know, Tibbs put them in a position to execute what they've done all year. Like everyone knows their role. Everyone's comfortable in their role. You know, like they played like they played really good basketball and were a really good team in the sense of like a collection of guys, but it wasn't like just one player just overwhelming them. And that's, you know, that's where it's like, it feels like the Cavs just lost on the margins and just got completely destroyed there. Mm-hmm. The Knicks knew exactly who they were entering this series and they stuck with it throughout the entire thing. And I would go on record, say, even if the Cavs had won this series, I bet the Knicks would have continued to play their brand of basketball. I don't think they would have scrambled the way the Cavs did uh, a great stat here. Uh, the Cavs ran their starting lineup, their most used starting lineup, Garland, Mitchell, Okoro, Mobley Allen. That lineup played 800 possessions together in the regular season. Uh, and the core four plus Jetty played just 79 possessions in the regular season. But guess which lineup played more in this first round? It was the core four and Jetty. Uh, Okoro was just out of the lineup for various points. And I think we're going to talk about some of the, like maybe one or two positives from this entire series. So I won't get into it too much right now. But Okoro, I think, proved that he belonged on the floor. I do want to uh, circle back and just kind of wrap up what we were talking about here with kind of some of the effort stuff because you touched on it uh when they trapped brunson or attempted to trap brunson in the fourth it was like it was the same thing we saw in game four they didn't really trap uh mm-hmm. they sent like one guy committed the other guy was like not sure if that's what he's supposed to do the people on the backside, there was a play where garland like just doesn't realize who he's supposed to pick up after the trap and i think that's a testament to like how often during the regular season did we see the Cavs do that? Like almost never. So again, when we're talking about like abandoning their identity, it's like the biggest moment of the season, you're kind of trying stuff on the fly and you're doing stuff that hasn't even proven to work at all. Like it didn't work in game four. So we're doing it again. And like the big thing there is like, 
the benefit of a trap, the reason why a trap works most of the time is because you're taking someone by surprise. And if you're going to beat a trap, if you're going to beat a trap, you get the ball out of your hand as quick as possible. So that's kind of how it works. You surprise someone, they don't get the ball out of their hands as quick as they can. And now you're playing with an advantage. When you know the trap's coming, you can get the ball out of your hands pretty quick. And so when you run the same trap over and over, Jalen Brunson, it's like he's playing like sixth grade basketball. The guy is just right. picking you apart. Emmanuel Quickly's picking you apart after struggling all series. He has, you know, finally they have the Emmanuel Quickly game, which even by his standards wasn't as good as he could have played. Toppin right. played great in this game. It was like you just handed them the easiest opportunities to pick you apart. And again, credit to the Knicks. They did it every time they had a chance. And so that brings me to what I know you and me both want to talk about here. JB Bickerstaff. Oh, one last thing that I want to say, because this is on topic with uh, JB, because we very briefly mentioned the Heat. Uh, I'm interested to see how the Miami Heat are going to respond to the Knicks, specifically the Battle of the Boards, because they're not a great rebounding team. They don't have as much size as the Cavs even did in their front court. And so when we talk about the game plan issues the Cavs had, I'm curious to see, is Spolster going to cook something up and, you know kind of prove and vindicate what we're saying that like if you have a better game plan maybe you can survive on the boards uh kevin love we're gonna get to find out what he could have done in a Knicks series i don't think it'll be a one-to-one comparison because it's a different team different matchup but we're gonna see what he could have brought to the table i'm very interested to see because if spolstra just absolutely coaches circles around tibbs and and just kills the Knicks, which i don't know if we'll, I, I honestly have no idea who's gonna win this series but it's just yeah, yeah, we're we're moving heat and five now. <laughs> yeah. But like it, things are already so bad for JB at this point. I can't imagine how much worse it would be if the Heat just crushed the Knicks and Spolster is just putting on a clinic. Like it's it's just something to keep an eye on. Uh but again, moving on to JB here. Uh you and me have defended JB all year long, but this series was about as concerning as it could have been. Uh Jackson, how confident are you in JB moving forward? Uh, confident in the sense of that he's going to keep his job or confident in that he can like rise up from this. Uh, you can because pick which I way do you want to take it. I think he's going to keep his job just because I don't think they're going to make a move that drastic right now. Um, but I'm not, I'm not confident at all. Cause you have to like, kind of like the rest of this team, um, they're going to need to prove something in the playoffs before you really trust them again. It's like, you look at all the um, metrics, you know, this team had like this, is it the second best net net rating in the entire league, the best defense, a top 10 offense. And then it all just goes away in the playoffs. So while we're not going to like, you're not going to be like, we're not going to be able to trust this team next year going into the playoffs, no matter what they show in the regular season, it's going to be the same thing for JB. Like this is the second year in a row that he's lost in the you know playoffs or play in to a team that you know the Cavs should have beaten and he was coach circles around you know like I brought it up you know just just a couple of minutes ago like they should have won that play in game they came out shooting the ball really well you know they I don't know how much they were up by at one point in the first half but I think it was over 15 and it just seemed like they were overwhelming the Hawks and then the Hawks made some adjustments at halftime and the Cavs, you know, JB never did. And then it was, it was like this, this whole series, like in the playoffs, 
the whole goal is to take away what the other team does best. We talked, when we started talking about the Knicks, we started talking about them in like March. What were we saying? We were like, if the Cavs can rebound, they'll win. And it's like, it was clear. Like it was clear, you know, the whole time. And they never, like, they never adjusted to try to take that away. There was no effort to take that away. Like never tried anything different at all. No. Well, all the, all the adjustments were to stop Brunson and I wish I had the numbers and I don't even know how to really find them, but I felt like in the first game, Jalen Brunson got all of his points off of like second chances. Like it felt like he got like, like, especially in the fourth quarter, it felt like he was really, taking advantage of those second chance looks that the Knicks mm-hmm. were generating from their like guards. And then, you know, and then they, the adjustment that they made was make sure that Jalen Brunson doesn't beat you kind of, cause they still put Darius Garland on him, mm-hmm. but like, make sure, make sure he doesn't beat you, but like, you know, but we'll just sacrifice the rebounds. And it's like, that was never the issue. Like if Jalen Brunson scores 40 points against Lavert or Isaac, it's like okay, that happens. Like, what can you do? But you just can't can't let them have both, and that's basically what the whole series comes out to. And that's where you're just like, we don't even need to talk about the offense. The offense was bad. I think there's like the limits that everyone has talked about and pointed out a million times that they don't have a fifth guy, that they only have two shooters. Like those things all came back to bite them. But really, to me, it's the defensive end that was the big letdown because that was the Cavs' advantage, and they weren't able to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to see them at, at just at some point in the series. I don't know when you would have made this move, but like as you said, uh, eventually, like you kind of just have to see, like, okay, Jalen Brunson, can you beat us? Can't like, and don't get me wrong, he beat us, but like not in the way that I'm trying to say. He didn't score above 30 in any game this series. It's not like he just, again, like a Jimmy Butler scoring 50, a LeBron type thing. Those are obviously big comparisons. But my point is like, at no point did you just say, okay, we're going to trust our defense. We're going to trust whoever's out there to defend Brunson one-on-one. And we're going to see if he can beat us with some incredible shot making. Maybe he could have. It's very possible he could have. But I would have liked to see you try to do that. Because then you can keep Allen more in the paint next to Robinson side by side. And sure, look, Robinson has some weight on him. I, I'm sure there's going to be times where Robinson wins a box out. But at least you're setting Allen up to be in a position where he has a better chance to win that matchup. Uh, right? Again, at the very least, just don't get obliterated. That was really the big thing. You just can't get obliterated, and they did. Uh, bringing it back to JB. Well, one thing I was going to say about Jalen Brunson that makes it so much more frustrating is he's like a two-by-twos guy. Like, he gets two points with these mid-range shots. He's not like getting to the line a bunch by attacking the rim. He's not like a guy who's pulling up from like five feet beyond the arc, like somebody that you need to like get the ball out of his hand because he's so destructive in like multiple different levels. He's he's not a one-level scorer, but he's more of a one-level scorer than like, you know, someone like some of these other guys that you see in the playoffs. And that's just what makes everything so much more frustrating. Yeah, to that point, there's a play in the fourth quarter. Can't remember exactly uh, what time. It's it's during like the final stretch where the Knicks were separating themselves, where the Knicks are setting a double screen for quickly. Uh, Brunson is one of the people setting the screen, 
and Levert is glued to him like he's Stephen Curry. Like, I am not leaving Brunson on the screen and quickly just rejects the screen and there's no one in front of him. Just completely free run to the rim. And it's like, again, I know Brunson's a threat. I know he's a great player, but if you're Levert, do you need to be hugging him at that point? Maybe take a step back and be some up or some resistance if quickly rejects the screen because Garland died on the screen there was Levert almost screened Garland because of how closely he was sticking to Brunson it was almost like a triple screen on Garland so again bringing it back to JB we've talked a lot about his lack of adjustments uh the rotations plenty of stuff that we could just repeat there but to summarize it I don't think anyone is very happy with his rotations uh even the Cleveland media members who typically support JB no matter what were like uh JB what are you doing here (laughs) like what's going on with these rotations man didn't make much sense. I will say thank you for not putting Ricky Rubio in in that game. Uh, that was smart. Uh, Lamar Stevens finally got his opportunity, and I, he but, played five minutes. And, and they were down 15 when they put him in. It's like yeah. if you're going to put like him too in. a little too late. Like if you're going to – it's kind of frustrating because it's like, well, they needed somebody bigger to get those rebounds. But at the same time, if they weren't going to guard them – because of like if they were going to put a body on them because they're overhelping, then it's like who cares who you put out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I thought the five minutes Lamar was in, the momentum shifted. Uh, he didn't necessarily do anything crazy. Like it, it, I don't think it was like solely because of him, but he got a standing ovation when he came in. Everyone kind of recognized this game needed some toughness, and he brought it right away. Um, and so I feel like. You go to him earlier in the series. I'm not saying it changes things, but worth a shot considering nothing else. It was so clear that nothing else was working that it's unfortunate they didn't go to him at some point there. One thing, one thing I do want to say in JB's defense that like we're mm-hmm. complaining about the rotations. If he would have just kind of stuck with his game one rotations of like, okay, coming into the series, I'm going to go with Dean Wade, you know, Ricky Rubio, and I'm going to splash in, you know, Karis, Karis Levert, and then maybe splash in some some uh, jetty minutes here and there. If he did that throughout the series and just never changed, we'd be more mad. But it's just kind of frustrating to see them kind of just get away from everything that they've done all season, where it just feels like they're like gra- like he's grasping at straws with these rotations. Like, okay, now we're going to put in Danny Green. Now we're not going to put in Danny Green. Now we're, mm-hmm. it's like... If Danny Green wasn't good enough to play basketball all season, which that was the whole thing. Like, I want to see Danny Green play basketball during the season down the stretch because it's like we don't know if he can fit in with this team. And then mm-hmm. to just be like, well, this team needs shooting in game two of the playoffs and say, OK, now we need Danny Green. It's like, well, we need a Danny Green in, you know, games against the Pacers in March, like not mm-hmm. in a playoff series in Madison Square Garden that you're tied one, one that you have to win. Like let's, that's not when it's like, okay, let's see what Danny green can give us. So that's where like, it's my frustrations more. So the rotations throughout the year than it is like in this particular playoff series, just because it's like, we all know the Cavs don't have good options off the bench, you know? Yeah. So that's a fair player. That's a fair point. Uh, You know, I've said it over and over. I feel like JB just kind of had the impossible task of like pushing the right buttons at the right time. There might not have been a single kind of concoction he could have made with that bench that would have worked. Even if you put Stevens in the game three, does it work? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it works for a, a stretch there, but does it change this series, the outcome? Maybe it doesn't. 
uh, probably doesn't, just considering everything else was going wrong. So we'll give JB credit there. I think shifting away from the X's nose, which we knew was a concern for JB, like that's what you would point to if you were worried about him. The one thing that most people and what we kind of bank most of our, you know, uh, praise for JB on is that he was the culture guy. He was the guy who the players bought into. He really managed to energize them and motivate them. And in the biggest moments, that energy was not there. Uh, the la- the sense of urgency was not there. And that is the most concerning thing for me that, again, as I mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to work like this, but game five must win on your home floor and you come out flat. That is really discouraging. And it really, I can't speak too much to who's at fault there, but it's hard not to point the finger at JB. There's like, you got to find a way to hype these guys up and get them swinging uh, to start that game. And the fact that they had no energy, at least seemingly had no energy, that is the big concern for me. Yeah, it's it's so emblematic for the rest of the series where the biggest issues were the Cavs were never able to play to their strengths. And that kind of includes JB, where like, you know, all season they all preached you know everybody in the in the organization just preached how good of a culture they have and how they have something to always like fall back on and grit toughness all those all those buzzwords like that are engraved on those you know on the um chain like all those words that were there they just kind of like disappeared when they when they needed them most and that's where it's like that's where it kind of falls back on JB as well where that culture that it seemed like you established just kind of disappeared and even though the X's and O's were bad it's like that can't the one thing that you were that you hang your hat on like just wasn't there and that's that's really disappointing mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean, that's about all that you can say. It's, it's disappointing. Uh, now, you did mention that you think his job is safe for now. I would probably agree. I think unless, like, again, his strength is kind of connecting to the players. I think if this is like a David Blatt situation where the players clearly didn't like him anyway, he's probably out the door immediately this summer. But since the players do seem to love him, uh, that's not the only reason they'll stick around. But I do think the Cavs will... Uh, you know, practice a little bit of patience, not kick him out the door right away. I think, you know, next February, if if the Cavs are looking stagnant or even worse, that's when JB really, the, the seat is going to be heating up quite a bit there. And it's already hot. So I would, you know, I wouldn't expect him to be gone right away unless they feel like there's a, a fantastic option out there to replace him, which I won't speak on. I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on all of the available coaching options. Uh, that's something that it's not my job there. So (laughs) we'll ignore that. But uh, the one thing that I will say for JB, not that I necessarily feel confident about this, but uh, you could hope that maybe he'll grow from this. Uh, It's only his second time being a head coach for a playoff series. His first time was with the Rockets and they ran into a buzzsaw. They ran into the 2016 Warriors, which everyone knows I'm Dub Nation, baby. We're going back to the finals. (laughs) I'm joking. But He's not. Uh, it's worth <laughs> it's worth mentioning that for a series where a lot of the players are, you know, not getting a pass by any means, but we're talking about it being their first series. Like 
JB is still very much new to this as well. So he has a lot of years being an assistant coach and a head coach for various teams, but this was only a second playoff series. So if you're trying to find anything to feel encouraged by, which again, I want to repeat, I am not necessarily confident in this. I'm just trying to point out every avenue. Uh, it was only a second playoff series. Maybe he learns from this. Yeah, I'm like, I don't think he's going to, he's going anywhere, but that doesn't mean that. I think that he shouldn't be going anywhere because it's like, mm. just like they lost to teams that they really shouldn't have. Like this is the second year in a mm. row their season ends to a team that I think they should like they should see themselves as better than you know. And a lot of the there were a lot of questionable decisions in both of those situations. So it's like, you know, his track record doesn't show that. He, this is something that he's good at, even if he hasn't shown improvement. It's like, and the thing is the staff has guys on it who have playoff experience. You think of like Luke Walton, he's, he was, you know, sitting right there next to Kerr during, during finals run. So it's like, you know, it's like playoff basketball is different, but it's still basketball at the end of the day. It's just that, it's just different from the regular season because of how hyper-focused it is and stuff. But it's like, if you know how to push the right buttons for your team, then it's not like you're magically going to learn how to do that. You know, it's something that you either can do or you can't. And it's, you know, he hasn't shown much improvement. So it's like, if you want to be a team that gets over the hump and beats teams that they're, you know, supposed to be definitely but maybe still a couple of series against teams that they're not supposed to be you need to have you know your coach is the one who needs to put you in those positions to do so and you know like this isn't a, like the Cavs don't have lebron james they're not going to be able to overpower most every team that they play in the playoffs so it's going to come down to tight series especially you know with how much parity is in the um, nba so coaching matters now more than really ever at I think in terms of like how far you can advance in the playoffs. So I don't like, I don't think JB is the, that guy for this team. So I don't know who that guy would be. It's tough to evaluate coaches, but you know, my, my trust in him in the playoffs is certainly, it certainly is going to need to be earned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. I'll tell you what, there's one guy who I wouldn't be too excited to get this uh, coaching job if JB does get fired, and it's uh, Coach Bud. Uh, that <laughs> Milwaukee disaster, like, listen, if there's one thing that made me feel better about the Cavs losing the way they did, other than getting the greatest Twitter video I've ever had directed at me, which maybe I'll include a, a clip here if anyone missed that. All right, this is the first guy I got to go at. I'm sorry it had to be you, but I keep seeing your shit on my timeline. I don't ever want to see you, Tony Pasta, talk about basketball ever again. Your team sucked. You kept creating excuses. Jared Allen is a Evan Mobley is a Tweet that. But other than that, uh, the Bucks going out the way they did with just an insane collapse. I realized that Giannis didn't play, and I, I kind of feel like they're not getting enough attention on the fact that Giannis missed three games, but, like, screw it. Like, slander's going anyways. Uh, but the fact that that happened definitely took some attention away from how horrific the Cavs were. 
and made me just feel a little bit better that we weren't the biggest disaster this playoff series or this uh this year with that one being thing, said though one thing though if you did have coach bud here they'd be shooting some threes so that is true they would that's they would for be sure doing and that. we'd have so many timeouts to to hold on to this summer uh, right well <laughs> for some reason bud did not think that calling a timeout with the season on the line was important uh, i don't really know what to say there so i Every time I think like this topic gets brought up, people say it's like a 50-50 decision. I feel like it never, like never ever works when there's like 10 seconds left and you get like a defensive rebound and you just let them play. Like, I feel like that never (laughs) works, like never. So I don't understand why teams just always do it or not like, and not every team, but like in this situation. Yeah. And there's a fine line where you should be able to realize, okay, this is going to work. Like you can let them play and then call that timeout once you realize it's not going to work. Once right. the ball went to Grayson Allen, call that timeout. But anyways, once, very once it crossed topic. like half court, you knew. Like, once Giannis was... <laughs> almost fell over with the ball and managed right. to get it to Middleton, that's where you call the timeout. But yeah, yeah. Mo- moving back to the Cavs, Jackson, I do have a challenge for you. Uh, it's like we're in school here. Can you say one good thing about the Cavs from this playoff series? Um. So, uh, I would say like, <laughs> I would say like <laughs> Isaac Okoro played good in the limited time he agree. played. Like he didn't, he didn't really play a whole lot. Like, I think he played good. I think Harris LeVert played well. What I think both players did, and if you look at their numbers, like they didn't really play well. Cause it's like, we don't need to shower Isaac Okoro with too much praise. Like he shot 30% from three you know like well to that point though he did he started over four i believe and then he finished four for nine after that i think so right it's very much and it's such a small sample size but like he showed a little bit towards the end right it's i feel like the conversation with isaac okoro is so it's like it's such a nuanced conversation that it feels like it's really tough to have because like you treat his you treat his offensive developments as like as like a kid first trying to learn how to like ride a bike like if you can like you know go around like the block like mm-hmm. you know it's yeah. great Baby and it's steps. like and it's like you know other people on offense are like you know riding their bike and like the, on the streets and stuff like that it's like <laughs> <They're> doing wheelies <laughs> right so it's like you know like yeah it, it feels like we're kind of like you know you the conversation is just a little weird, but like he did what I will say about Isaac is he did his job like mm-hmm. what and he wasn't scared to do his job. So that's the best thing I could say about him where like when the ball swung to him, even if he missed it, he said, hey, I'm here to take this shot. I'm going to take this shot. And he did. Yeah, and didn't back he, down at all. Right. And when and when he was in the game, he said, I'm going to pick up Jalen Brunson full court and that's what I'm going to do. So it's like he He's not a perfect player. I don't think it was like he should have played more, obviously. And him playing when Brunson wasn't on the court was like malpractice. Um, (laughs) So, like, I don't like, you know, if you put him in, like, if he's if he starts as a series different, maybe. But that's also like it's only different if they put him on. I they they put him on Brunson. They don't overhelp. They don't trap. You know, they don't do those stupid stuff then I think the series is different, but like, 
all this is to what is, is to say Isaac was one of the few players who like did their job and played to their standard. So mm-hmm. good for him. And the same with Karis LeVert. I want to say this is, you know, Karis LeVert's numbers don't jump out to you as like fantastic, but I think he did good. And this is the mm-hmm. second, you know, he did really good in the play in last year against the Hawks and he did good against the Knicks this year in the playoffs. So it's like, in both those situations, he was one of the few guys who came and did exactly what you wanted him to do. So I'd say, you know, hats off to both. I agree. Um, Isaac Okoro, fantastic point that you brought up is that, you know, one thing that we were a little worried about is like, okay, if he starts off slow, is he going to stop shooting? Is he going to lose confidence? And he absolutely did not. Uh, he kept letting it go and he turned it around towards the second half. Like I mentioned, second half of the series, he started shooting much better. Um, really one of the only guys who played like they did during the regular season in this series. Like I mm-hmm. like I would say Karis was pretty much the same type of player. Jetty yeah. was like the same thing. But like these other guys, it was such a huge variance between them. Uh Karis. I think has proven since the deadline that he belongs here. I, he's proven that he's a very valuable, I would still want him coming off the bench personally, like moving forward. I think you should try and find a actual wing to play next to them. Uh, that lineup with him in the starting lineup was their best lineup all year. I think though. So like, I'm not opening up that argument. I'm just saying, I, I still think he's probably the sixth man, uh, but I think he's proven he belongs judging by the press conference. It sounds like, he absolutely wants to return to Cleveland and I would assume they keep him uh, because it just makes sense at this point. He is one of their only two way guys. He has proven that he can be a reliable ball handler. He's a very good playmaker when the offense is rolling, when it's stagnant, that's when you're going to get Karis mid range. That's when you're going to get some weird moments. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think he has proven he belongs. I think Okoro, I would almost say the exact same thing. I don't know if he's a starter, uh, I don't know if you want to keep trying to force him into the starting lineup or if you'd be better off getting someone who just makes more sense uh, in terms of like spacing. But I think he has proven he belongs. I think he really that it's it's hard to say that anything was too encouraging or like that I'm too optimistic, but I really do feel optimistic with the way Okoro played in this series and his in the few minutes he got. Like I just I can't imagine because he's still so young and he has taken those baby steps. Like we said, maybe the training wheels are still on, but the efficiency has improved quite a bit. And it's like, I just, it's hard to imagine that a guy like that who works as hard as he does, who is already as good defensively, isn't going to find a way to be a role player in this NBA. I don't, I don't think he's going to be a star at any point. Again, I don't even know if he'll be a starter, but as a role player on the bench, who's going to come in and give you quality minutes. I really think he is going to be that one day. Uh, so I agree. Those are the two things that were the biggest positives for me in this series. Yeah. One thing I'll say about Okoro is he's still really young. I believe he's still 21. Um, and, but the things that like Okoro needs to improve so much on offense, it's not even just mm-hmm. his shot, like his shot yeah. for sure. Like his shot needs to improve. But, like, he needs to be a basketball player on offense, and he's currently not a basketball player. He's somebody who, you know, he can't pass, he can't dribble, or at least he doesn't have the freedom to do so because they don't trust him to do so or he doesn't trust himself to do so. So it's like until he becomes somebody who can actually, 
you know, be more than a, either I'm going to catch and shoot it, I'm going to, you know, move off ball, or I'm going to, like, one dribble drive. Like, until he becomes more multifaceted than that, it's really, really, like, tough to see him as a starter. And you never want to put a ceiling on a guy, but it's like, you'd start, like, you need to start seeing some things because, you know, it's just so hard. Like, this is... This is the worst roster construction for somebody who plays like that, you know, with two bigs who, you know, who aren't guys who can like dribble the ball up the floor and just initiate the offense. Hopefully Evan Mobley becomes that one day. We've seen some encouraging signs at times. I think the playoffs shows that that's still a work in progress, but it's like, you know, even if Evan Mobley becomes that, you're still you're still basically two guys who aren't ball handlers or shooters that defenses will respect on the floor. So it just makes everything really tough. And that's where it's like he needs to become so much more than just a shooter to really be a starter. And that's where it's like that's where it's a tough conversation. And that's why he didn't get a ton of minutes, even though JB has shown time and time again throughout the regular season. He's going to give him as many chances as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- those are all fantastic points. And it kind of brings us into what I want to wrap up the episode with is just kind of very briefly, what do the Cavs need to focus on this summer? And I think you touched on it here. I think the biggest thing is they need to find a way to build a supporting cast that makes sense, just something that fits and works with the talent that they have. Uh I'm sure I'll repeat myself over and over as we head into the summer and talk more in depth about this, but I'm in favor of keeping this core intact uh, at least for one more year uh, in the sense that like, I want to keep the core four together and I want to see what they look like with either a wing in the starting lineup with them or just a supporting cast. That makes sense. Uh, I would say you wait for the chaos that's probably going to happen in this off season as, as every team starts to make moves and, who knows what big player is going to force his way out. There's always going to be some craziness. Uh, and that's where Kobe needs to get in and find some scrap parts. That's where he needs to be the third team in these deals. That's where he needs to find a way to get more talent on this team. I know they're very strapped for cash. They'll have, they'll have opportunities to sign people. I really hope I think of, you know, Otto Porter Jr. Being a mid-level exception guy and then playing closing minutes in the finals for Golden State. Like if you can find a guy like that, uh, very difficult, but it's out there clearly. Uh, if I'm being as optimistic as possible and kind of thinking of like a utopia for the Cavs this summer of like the best things all happening, uh, you sign either a wing or a backup big for that, for, for, for the mid-level exception. Uh, who knows, maybe Danny Green comes back and he looks better with a full summer to kind of heal and maybe he's a reliable player who can play during the regular season Maybe, and I know we joke about this all the time, but maybe Sam Merrill is closer to what we wanted Dean Wade to be, right? Like maybe he just does that a little bit better. Maybe he's a depth piece. Maybe Isaiah Mobley comes in and is a reliable backup big. Like there's a lot of things on the margins. Uh, Maybe Kobe works a miracle and manages to move someone on the fringe of this roster, whether that be for another asset or even just extra spending, second round picks, something to work with at the deadline. And then to finally wrap it up here with what I'm getting at is I would try to keep this core intact as much as possible and explore every avenue to building a better supporting cast. And if you get to the deadline, 
and this team is stagnant like if all those fail you strike out completely and you get to the deadline and this team is stagnant or even worse than they were last year that's where you kind of open up the war chest and you go okay do we have to trade Levert? do we have to look into moving jared allen like what what are we going to do here that's when i think the pressure really starts to build and that's where you start to make some of these deals that we talked about this year where it's like well should they trade like a good example cares Levert for tim hardaway jr Clearly, you are losing that trade from a talent standpoint. You are not upgrading, but you're getting someone who fits the roster better. I feel like next year, that's when, if things are still not looking great, that's when you start to make a trade where it's like, all right, we just need to shake something up because this isn't working. Uh, Jackson, uh, what do you think the Cavs should be focusing on this summer? Uh, somebody who can shoot the basketball. Like I think we can say everything that we want about all these things, but whoever they target needs to have one thing in common. It's that they're a shooter. And it's like, you look at the guys that they got this year, uh, this past year and with, you know, their mid-level exception and their signings, you're looking at Lopez, not a shooter, Neto, not a shooter, Rubio, not a shooter. So it's like this year, like it doesn't matter if you get a big, they need to be a um, shooter. If you get a wing, they need to be a shooter. I, they really need a wing. Like, I know that there's some problems with the backup big. That's going to be a problem, you know, like that needs to change. But it's just like the wing is just so much more valuable because it's like the Cavs, the Cavs put up the second best net rating in the entire league and they did not have a like they didn't they didn't have a 2023 nba roster right well like <laughs> they, they had well, like a 1980s roster well if you look at the like karis Levert's not a wing like that's that's mm -hmm. something that i think exactly. we should say is like he's not a wing because he doesn't do wing things like you know he's somebody <laughs> he's who likes right he likes the ball he likes the ball in his hand he he played he was developing more wing like skills i guess like more of a shooter more of an off-ball player as the year went on and he did a good job but he's not a wing and so you're looking at like isaac okoro who no matter how much you believe in isaac okoro i think you can say he's a below average rotational wing you know and it's like if they just got an average rotation wing who can shoot it's like that just changes absolutely everything. Okay, now Isaac Okoro is coming off the bench, and he's somebody who's going to be used more as like an energy guy. Karis Levert shifting back to coming off the bench. You know, Dean Wade's not going to suck like this forever. Hopefully, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe Isaiah Isaiah Mobley takes a big step forward, and he can be somebody who gives you some minutes. Maybe you can get like some playable center. You know, like you you need a playable center. Like Robin Lopez was not playable. It was fairly obvious after like two days, like two games, it's like this guy cannot play basketball anymore, unfortunately. So it's like, if you get somebody who can play, who could just give you minutes, basically just soak up minutes in the regular season. Like that's really what you need. Who's not just going to be bleeding minutes, like bleeding points. Cause that's what they had when, you know, whether it was Robin Lopez or like Mamadi Diakite, when they would try to run him out there, it's like, you're just bleeding points because Mamadi will look good for two seconds and then he will just like have three fouls and two turnovers. <laughs> and you're just like, 
the ball was in your hands. How did, how did it like slip out? You, you know, stuff like that <laughs> happened. So it's just yeah. like, you know, it's like they, they need guys who can play, but they don't need like, it's not like, Oh yeah, we need like, you know, a Chris Middleton type wing to make this all work. It's like, no, they need somebody who mm-hmm. can dribble, who can dribble the ball without it going off their foot, who has like, glue and guy. can shoot the ball. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, like how much would like Torian Prince help here? You know, it's a like, how, mu- how much would like Alec Burke, like if Alec Burke was on the Cavs, you're like, okay, this all makes sense now. Like, <laughs> you know, just like th- these guys aren't like good players, you know, mm. like that's the whole thing. It's like, they don't need a good player. They just need a player. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, like they need an NBA quality, like big and an, an mm. NBA quality wing. And it's like, yeah, you know, so I, that, I get what you're saying a hundred percent. And that's why I, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon of like, they need to get Jared Allen off this team immediately. It's like, all right, yeah, he had basically the worst playoff series you could have had, but I want to see what this core looks like with someone who can play basketball at the small forward position. I just want to see what it looks like. And if it works, like, listen, if they get a reliable wing, which is a tall ask already, like they don't grow on trees. It's not exactly going to be the easiest thing, but let's say they do get a reliable wing. If Pandora's box opens and all of a sudden we're the best team in the NBA and they're just killing it, like awesome. If not, and it's clear they're like, okay, like even if they make it all the way to the playoffs and Jared Allen just gets run off the floor again, then it's like, all right, now we really need to blow this up or, or start shaking things up. But until then, or at the very least, until you do everything in your power to see what this core looks like with the wing, I just don't think we can make any conclusions, which I know that sounds disappointing because we just had a whole year with this team and it's like you're telling me we can't make any final conclusions but i think you need to see what they look like with a competent wing next to them that makes sense before we can really talk about blowing this core up yeah and they need to they need to establish kind of a better identity on both sides 100%. of the ball and i think that yeah. comes back to coaching too so it's like mm. even if jb stays they got to make some changes they got to do different stuff you know mm. like they have to make these adjustments, they got to trust their players more. It's the same thing we talked about all January. It was like, trust your bigs to be there in the paint. You don't need like, you don't need your wings and guards like dipping below the free throw line because somebody's driving, you know, 10 feet away from you. Like stay, you know, like they got to just trust each other. And it just seems like that whole thing is just played out in like 15 different ways, but it's the same general problem. Let me throw one hypothetical at you before okay. we wrap up. Okay. Um, so we're not going to have a lot of cap space and we need a big and we need a shooter. What would you say about Kevin Love? Like, I think he'd be somebody who would fit in well with this team. You think they could get him? <laughs> yeah, I think he's definitely going to be available probably for pretty cheap. You know, Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I heard that he has history with the team. I think he was on the 2016 championship team, so we'll be bringing Whoa, some championship experience. This is, this is breaking uh, news to me. Yeah. Does he does he rebound? Like, is that something yeah, that they need? You know, they need a- he, he had 12 rebounds the other night as the wow. number eight seed beat the number one seed. So wow. I don't know. <laughs> something Look, something to think about, Kobe. You may I need to, I, I know you're unfamiliar with him. You kind of, <laughs> you know, you might have chased him out of town. <laughs> 
Listen, I'm we're gonna we're gonna dive deep into the Kevin Love stuff eventually. Uh, we have a lot of fun stuff planned for the off season. One thing that we're definitely going to do is kind of just break down the fatal flaws of the season. And Kevin Love, in our opinion, is one of those fatal flaws. Uh, we won't break it down at this moment because this podcast will go for another two hours. But we're definitely going to hit on that topic eventually. And to, to answer seriously, if Kevin Love re-signed with the Cavs, that would probably be the most unlikely thing I could imagine this summer. Like that would just be that would be crazy. Uh yeah, but I, it was a joke. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it would make sense. <laughs> it would. It would fit all of their needs, surprisingly. Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode. I want to say thanks everyone for sticking with me and Jackson as we work through our rookie season as podcasters. It's, it was a fun, albeit disappointing, end to the season. As I said, we have plenty of good stuff planned for the upcoming weeks. We will be working through the summer, so please stick around. Hit subscribe. Leave a rating, all that good stuff. And Jackson, this one might hurt to say, but go Cavs. I agree. Go Cavs. <laughs>